Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we spoke to Giles Hattersley, the Features Director at British Vogue. We spoke to Giles about his early career at the Sunday Times and Arena magazine, the profile that got him the job at British Vogue and what that job involves. It's a really great episode. We hope you enjoy it. So welcome, Giles, to Always Take Notes. Um, We're sat in Vogue House, which is lovely. Um, Welcome. (laughs) Thanks for having us. Um, I'd like to start by asking how writing fits in with the general Vogue package. Um, well, essentially how important the words are to uh, well a visual-led, <laughs> sumptuous of, fashion yeah, magazine. Exactly. Um, well, I would say incredibly important and entirely crucial and um, kind of always have been. Um, Vogue obviously is known as the world's most sumptuous, alluring, trend-setting fashion title. Um, but, you know, the umbrella is wide. And within that, there's the, you know, obviously we live now in the or have done for the last 15 years in the era of celebrity being so important. Those covers have kind of evolved from pure kind of fashion uh, images into uh, into agenda-setting interviews and people of note. But that runs, from Vogue, it runs through everything, from politics to arts and culture uh, to social trends um, and also to fiction. Um, uh, it's kind of a broad church. And for you yourself in your career had fashion always been a been a focus been an interest you did a master's in fashion journalism I did yes it's funny when I think back on um how it all sort of all started I think some a lot of journalists are kind of dyed in the wool um from the get-go aren't they they kind of uh imagine that this life kind of from from the age of five or 17 or, or whenever and I think I was always very I was always a passionate reader of newspapers and I was obsessed, like obsessed, obsessed, obsessed with magazines from about the age of, well, I mean, even, I mean, probably even before like the face and stuff, I was reading like kind of kids magazines and then was obsessed with Vogue and um, many other kind of fashion titles. Um, but I don't know if I ever kind of thought in my head, oh, I'm going to, I'm, I'll be an editor or I'll be a writer or I think I just loved the world. Um, and so when it came to the sort of, fashion interest um I went to Warwick originally after high school and did an English degree classically um and then to London where but when I moved yeah so I applied to St Martin's to the to the fashion journalism MA um uh, but I really think I just just was like psyched for the world I don't think I thought okay well that's gonna that's obviously gonna mean that my dream will be that I'll just go and work at Vogue one day um so I'm very happy to have got here. But I do have that weird fashion thing in my DNA, I guess, in that the interest was kind of always there. But interestingly, then I had many years, you know, kind of uh, in newspapers before coming here. And as much as I kind of imagined myself as a kind of um, a pure fashion person, you only have to start working here with many of our fashion editors to realise that you're, (laughs) you're, um, you know, you're not the most knowledgeable fashion person in the room, for sure. Your first job was at Sunday Times. It was, yes. Yeah. And what were you writing about there? It was features. I mean, I really had the uh, an amazing, lucky kind of start. I um, so I did my fashion. I did my fashion journalism MA at St Martin's, um, and then I had an internship. Literally, I finished on the Friday and had an internship set up for the Monday at Style, um, which was a month long classic. You know, sit with the um, editor's assistant and do all the cuttings and open the post. 
a lot of posts back then. I remember my first day was, I mean, this is wildly dates. It was we, uh, Sophia Neofita would just come on as the new fashion director. And I had to stand by the fax machine for about 12 hours, faxing this news to the fashion houses of Europe and the, and the rest of the world. Um, so yes, it was, it was all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I, I sort of don't know how it kind of happened. I think I just, you know, what I, I was just kind of quite lucky in some ways. I remember the first thing I ever got in print was, you know, I mean, the Star Barometer that still endures and delights to this day. Um, they used to have a little kind of meeting for it once a week. Um, Tiffany Dark was the editor there at the time. And I remember saying that I thought tall men should be going up because the Hulk movie was out that weekend and Prince William was six foot two and this was, this was important. And that was my first thing that ever got printed was tall men going up in the style barometer. But honestly, the thrill of it, I'm not sure you ever quite matched the first time you see your kind of effect on a printed page. Um, and then from there, I guess I just, you know, I, you know, my, my kind of month went well and, and, you know, I'm sure both of you remember your kind of interning days and, and you get to that kind of last Friday and you're kind of looking for the next thing and you've got it half set up. And then they said, just kind of stay. And then through that summer, they kind of found different ways to, to sort of pay me. I mean, it wasn't a job, but like they'd essentially pay me as a freelancer for things that I was doing while kind of being in the office. Um, and, you know, I remember looking back at that time and I did one of those um, next generation talent um, shoots um, and was very much put in charge of finding the people, interviewing them, you know, liaising with pictures on getting all the shoot together. I looked back at the other day and it was, um, and there was Lily Cole was in there and Lewis Hamilton at 15. Um, I was really like, yeah, I couldn't believe, I was like, Can you disclose it. what year this was? <laughs> I guess that must have been about 2003. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, but as ever, you learn the power of research, don't you? It's not that I was some like intuiting that like Lewis was going to become this sort of like megastar of sport. You just, you call the people that know. <laughs> um, were you, was that internship paid? It was, I think it was £10 a day. Okay. So it was... So your, not really. So not really. I mean, £10 a day, I mean, did that just about get you to work and maybe like a, a, a shitter sandwich, <laughs> perhaps? <laughs> and you you won an award, right, as a as a young journalist? I didn't win, but thank you for bringing it up. I, I was nominated. Because oh, <laughs> um, we, we, when we had Jay Rayner on yesterday, he said he had won. Oh, good, well, good for award. Jay. And he said that the thing that was great about it was it meant that you then couldn't be fired. Right. Did this mesh with your experience? Um, so, so I think by that point, I was kind of living my, my happy kind of Sunday time style, sort of move to London fantasy life. And then a job wasn't kind of coming up. And as ever in this business, I mean, it's, it's great to be, you know, great to be good but you also have to be timely and and the slots kind of weren't coming up so that autumn after I'd been so it was there for sort of the summer and then the early autumn um the features assistant or just the assistant job came up on the news review section um where Eleanor Mills was editor of at the time and um I kind of like didn't want to do it like it was it was you know the Sunday times in those days it was the in Pennington Road and then they had a they called the deep and the shallow end. It's a huge, you know, sort of open plan floor and sort of style and culture and travel were all kind of down the far end. And then the deep end was foreign and news and business and what have you. And it was fully in the deep end. It was actually, my desk was the nearest, I think, in the entire office. It was just outside John Witherow's office. So you felt very like in the hardened pressure of kind of, of, of the news side of things. And my initial reaction was, no, like, it literally smelt better on style. There were so many like flowers everywhere. <laughs> um, and everyone looked so 
drawn and grey and uh, suffering up the up the deep end. But um, uh, but you know, a job on Sunday Times at that point, you know, was amazing, and I'm so glad that I did it because, again, I, I you know, kind of the researcher side of stuff, you learn the kind of pace of it. You learn the actual proper way to kind of dissect and give that Sunday spin on a news cycle, um, kind of deepening coverage on a Sunday that's so important. So I think from a features point of view, it's the it's almost a kind of perfect place to 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 learn. Um, I then started writing little bits. Um, I um, I tell you one thing actually about that that same Sunday Time style um, list of new faces was Dizzy Rascal was also in it, and then he won the Mercury. And we, we had an interview with him, so I got to write that interview up, which then meant a kind of first sort of longish read happened by pure kind of luck, I guess. So they kind of knew I could write a bit, and then that started to kind of escalate. So you're in that kind of mad bit of an early career where you're kind of like, on the one hand, like, making coffees, doing all the photocopying, but also, like, turning out 1,200 words for Sunday. Like, it's, it's you kind of do it all. Um, and then I was lucky enough to get um, shortlisted for Young Journalist of the Year, um, which I didn't win. But was I guess? <laughs> but was but I guess. Are you saying that thing about that means makes you non-fireable? I guess it makes you at least like more legit or something, maybe. Um. So how long were you on the the news desk for? A uh, news review. Um. For um. I guess it was about. I tell you what does make the difference when you become unfireable is when someone else offers you a job. So um, that'll do it. <laughs> that'll do it. So I remember being. I mean, I'm still the, effectively had this an assistant. You know, I was the literally the office junior. Um. But. I was getting more and more bylines and then the the Daily Mail offered me like associate editor of female I think it was like and it was this huge amount of money and um I couldn't it was sort of out of the blue and I couldn't sort of quite believe it and then they went back to the Sunday Times who offered me it must be said less money <laughs> but gave me a proper kind of staff job um and then and then actually quite quickly became took over the main news review interview slot and continuing the, the chronological uh, exploration of the Giles career, can we talk about your, your stint at Arena? Oh, yes. Okay. So, and, so, and both in, in terms of like what you did, but also what was going on in the magazine market at that sure. time and, and what that relatively brief spell sort of said about the changing dynamics of the industry. Totally. I mean, that was a very interesting, slightly traumatic <laughs> um, year. Um, so, yes, it was Sunday Times for a bit longer, but I became the kind of that, that main interview slot. And then the arena job came along, um, and I mean, I think I was, I was twenty-seven or maybe even twenty-six when we first started having these kind of talks about it. So the idea of being, you know, of being interviewed to be an, an editor in chief of a of what was then, you know, an established, well-loved, um, uh, respected title was kind of wild. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt that I couldn't sort of not take it, and then got plunged from the kind of relative safety of having worked those first few years of a career at this sort of big um, juggernaut, um, uh, went to a, you know, a the third magazine uh, in a market of three um, kind of quality men's titles. So I suppose you'd have a GQ and then you would have the Edsquire and then you would have, have had Arena. Um, it was a fascinating time. It was definitely the first big squeeze of the magazine market in general. Like it was 2000 and... 2008 um and you know the the sheen was definitely kind of going off the like limitless um money machine that um those titles kind of had been in their like heyday of the late 90s and then into the kind of early noughties um 
it's amazing what you think of at 26 and 27 or whatever age I was. It was you, you, you just think quality will do kind of everything. That you'll go in, you'll have this much, these, these ideas will be better, you'll do a redesign and somehow everyone will be looking for it and, and will decide that that's the thing that they want to buy more than next month. Whereas actually what that very interesting, traumatic, glad for it, in some ways, yeah, did teach me was that the the level of kind of support and um, uh, that those kind of titles actually require. During the time I was there, actually it was when um, EMAP, EMAP hired me and when I left it, it was Bauer. So there was also a, a massive internal corporate um, turnaround that kind of happened within it. And, you know, I don't think Arena was the big priority for them. And I think I probably saw that quite quickly and learned that lesson quite soon into the experience that um, no matter how brilliant the team you assemble, no matter how fun, engaging, novel the ideas you kind of produce in, if it doesn't get out there to the right people, if you're not willing to sort of back it to put it on the right eye level slot in WH Smiths, if you're not willing to kind of have a 360 approach of a comms department that can get your kind of message out and basically have, you know, a lot of money and love kind of poured into something it's quite hard to 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 get it going um and so like a like a crying toddler <laughs> i returned to the sunday times um uh after about i think i mean i was probably there for about nine months or a year i guess um i was you know proud of the work that we did but it um it then very sadly as it's incredibly sad to see any magazine goes i think it had a maybe another Maybe someone took over after me and then maybe there was another editor and then it sadly folded, I think, about a year after I left. Um, but, yeah. How much of um, the problems that Arena faced were the kind of advent of online journalism and the need to have lots and lots and lots of content? Um, I imagine they were... Oh, they certainly would have been. I mean, almost 2008 was kind of an interesting time there, wasn't it? Because I think what was, what was eating away was that obviously kind of the rise of social the rise of 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 internet news and um internet kind of lifestyle stuff and and particularly for kind of um male interests you could certainly get that starting to get that kind of online um you know i think there were the weeklies there was nuts and zoo had kind of come along that were kind of chipping away at that um kind of end of it too um and you know it was the first big shrink of the market and as the third title in that in that market of three, I think it was the, the first to wobble. Um, can you then talk about, so back to the Sunday Times and then how you, how you moved to Vogue? How did that progression so, work? I mean, that was a, that was a 10 year, that was a 10 year <laughs> slot. <laughs> so, summarize that decade in, in 20 seconds. Um, so I went back to the Sunday Times as, um, uh, on a kind of contract, um, purely to write. So it wasn't the same sort of job that you'd, left no. when you went kind of though I mean really a lot of my Sunday times is was mostly writing I mean once you kind of established kind of family member there in a way you can get roped into all sorts of things I mean I, there was definitely a week I think after I'd returned from Marina where um everyone was off on news review and I went in and got the section out and there was a certainly a period just before coming to Vogue when um I was in on the kind of style desk for about six months on the on the kind of editing side um but those you know that Sunday times years was it's that kind of dream thing of just running around, meeting the world's most interesting people, doing kind of a Sunday Times magazine, big kind of cover feature one week, or like a quick on the week news review thing, or like a fun kind of star piece, or um, a culture, big culture interview. I mean, if you're a, if you're 
a features writer, I think it's almost hard to beat the Sunday Times just for that kind of breadth of stuff because you can do so many different things in any given week. Um, so I did that for, yeah, quite a few years. <laughs> and then um, Vogue came along, um, I mean, really out of the blue in some ways. Um, I had So I'd met Edward Enenfall, um Vogue's editor-in-chief now, um, and that he'd been given an OBE, and so Style thought to do and he kind of came into London with this big kind of fanfare you know he went and accepted it with his wonderful family and with Naomi and he had the kind of party of the autumn it was a kind of big sort of London scene moment um, and that was I guess the autumn of 2016 um, and so we met and I wrote this wrote a profile of him um, and it's about one of the two two times in my career that anyone's ever liked the profile that I've written of them um, and he was you know he got in contact the next day and said how when he when it had run how um, you know, kind of friends and family of his had been had got in touch to say how they couldn't believe how much I'd got him. That like he felt like he was really seen. It felt true. Actually, and I read, went, went and read it back again um, a little bit after that. Once I'd kind of arrived here, thinking, God, what is this absolutely sycophantic love letter <laughs> that I must have penned? Um, and actually, it's it's a profile in keeping with I think all of the profiles that I do, and that it's kind of you know warm but quite cheeky quite I mean often the things that people do take offence at sometimes I think people who know themselves and are confident kind of don't and, and kind of enjoy that so he liked it anyway miraculously because no one ever does um, uh, but that was before Alex Zandra Shulman who was the previous editor here um, announced her that she was leaving um, so maybe six months later after that interview and then the whole process Vogue was in this big tumultuous process um uh, I got in touch with Edward, who um, uh, was sort of keen for me to write some interviews for the magazine, um, perhaps come on as a contributor. And then he just sort of said, you know, kind of as a as a last thought, you know, or I mean, are you are you how are you how are you fixed at the Sunday Times? Did you you know you wouldn't be interested by any chance in talking about kind of something more permanent? And so we went for a coffee, and um, you get those moments in your career where things just click, where I think almost within minutes we'd gone from talking like what if we would we what if we did this to like we're doing this you know it, it almost just evolved through that very natural connection um and so it proved and then the can we talk a bit about some of the the stories you sent over to us and, and particularly what what struck myself and rachel reading this was the the sort of tonal gear shifts that, that you know you're taking so we'll put these in the show notes but the the profile of Plum Sykes and then the, the two Vogue pieces about Ariana Grande mm-hmm. and Jane Fonda. And I thought like the the voice in the Sunday Times pieces seemed quite kind of distinct to the Vogue one. It was sort of slightly more acerbic, things like that. Do you feel you're making a kind of conscious gear shift depending where you're writing? Or is that something that comes through in the editing processes? I think certainly. I think you do you do kind of shift as slightly as to where you're kind of writing for. Um, I also think some really interesting things happened between, um, say, that interview with wonderful Plum Sykes, which I guess must have been about 2016, probably, or 17? 17. 17. So about two and a half years ago to now. Um, the, um, I think the world's got kinder. And I think I've got kinder. Um, you know, you can look back at um, some Vogue interviews, as I often do, a favourite thing to do here is to pluck a kind of random 1998 copy of, of Vogue off and see what they were up to. And some of the interviews are like savage, you know, because that was the time, you know, it was 
the era of Limbaba reigning over the kind of uh, um, over everything, and 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 people were you know savagely on the attack. I used to think that like I read my old Sunday Times interviews sometimes, um, and my starting point always seems to be like like who the hell do you think you are? <laughs> like that's the, and I think that was true of a lot of the kind of media landscape. Um, so having arrived at kind of Vogue, you know, obviously there's um, there's a, there's a, always a tonal shift in, in 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 which outlet you're kind of writing for. But I think the more more interesting shift is something that's that is cross happened across media, which is that you know we I think people are kinder. I think people treat people come to people more on their own level, willing to to hear their kind of stories in full, and you know hopefully not to tolerate too much bullshit or it become a kind of you know, the, the hideous puff pieces that we all kind of hate but i think you know the the worlds in which you're kind of bringing people to 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 bring their opinions on have shifted i mean you know it'd be it'd be silly and naive and disingenuous to think that a a, a hollywood actress's love life was no longer of kind of interest to readers of course that remains <laughs> the same there's the purient gossip gene is not kind of folded but you know it would be it would have been bizarre frankly 10 years ago for an editor to tell me that i need to know um i need to know their opinions on feminism or activism or self-care or mental health you know these are the things that we walk into interviews now kind of keen to hear people's take on because that's what you know actually gets picked up and that's what the conversation has kind of shifted to in the broader sense so in the past 10 years have you found that you've done you've started doing much more prep for for profiles and, and for long interview pieces, if you have to know everything that their stance is on the environment and feminism and who they've dated and their favourite <laughs> designers, is I mean, that a bit do. more laborious? No. no, I don't think. I think it's always you always read everything. I mean, that's the rule, isn't it? You find every interview, every long read. I mean, when I ask for cuttings from my team, I need every major interview, print interview they've done in the past. I mean, sometimes actually, if it's a huge megastar, they've only done about four. But um, uh, but everything for at least the last ten years, um, and then you know the 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 pick of the last kind of three months kind of news cuttings, and then if they've in the stage where they've written an autobiography, you're kind of into that, and then you've got all the you know, now thanks to YouTube, you can spend your life watching bizarre Australian chat shows and see what they had to say on that. I mean, it's it, can we talk a bit about the process with those pieces in terms of like from the from the, the kind of negotiation for access with with the subject is that you doing that or someone else and then through you know the reporting of of the piece and then and then the editing so we get you know from from kind of start to finish and a couple of things i was particularly interested in was like with the um plum sykes piece the sort of choice of venue you know to do it in in the provost lodgings at her old college and things and your idea? old college that, too. It was also my old college. Yes. <laughs> Is that why you're interested? <laughs> well, but like, whose whose call was that to do that? I mean, maybe just like say, let, let's look at that piece, and then maybe at the Ariana Grande piece. You know, the, could you just talk us through the process from sure. like. You know how the subject is decided, how the access is arranged. You know, setting up the the proceed. Just, just kind of. You know, totally. we, re- we really try and get into like the nuts and bolts of how, yeah. how this is done. So, I mean, you know, first of all, first comes the idea to do someone. You know, that's the 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 the, the beginning point, isn't it? You know, that is a person of interest. Hopefully, they haven't been interviewed a million times recently. Why they're intriguing, um, and so for Plum, it would obviously be that she had her book out. Um, she'd written a kind of Agatha Christie meets kind of P.G. Woodhouse meets um, Candace Bushnell kind of <laughs> Oxbridge um, tiara and, and puffball dresses kind of um, thriller set in the 80s 
um, at Oxford. Uh, obviously, she had to live that life entirely herself. And so I believe it was her suggestion um, to do it kind of at her old college because it literally set her and the world of the book in the kind of place, especially with things like the Sunday Times magazine or indeed with Vogue or as you'll see in Vanity Fair or, or the New York Times magazine, you know, setting is so key. Um, it's about access, it's about kind of mood, and it's about kind of creating a world that isn't just two strangers essentially sitting in a hotel room in West London um, trying to kind of conjure a world. You want to kind of, you, you want to, you know, for those more sumptuous, like long read experiences, you need to kind of take the reader with you. Even you, though it may you be. Do you let them decide where they want to be interviewed, basically, as a general rule? Well, no, I think often you kind of, um, oftentimes it works on, uh, on we kind of push for things as well. Um, uh, with Ariana, you know, she actually, we would have absolutely, we always loved to interview at home. I think that, that really places the reader somewhere kind of special and intimate and, and, and kind of means that Vogue takes people places that others kind of can't. Um, but, you know, the simple reason Ariana wanted to do it at her home in Beverly Hills was because it's such an absolute ball ache for her to leave the house, the security level, the like. It's her going to a restaurant as a whole thing. And actually, I'm sure she would be much more easy and much more comfortable and much more kind of welcoming at home, even though for some people that's a really big line. Um, it's interesting you, you mentioned the US counterpart publications there, and I thought, so I did my journalism training in the US and things, and there's this kind of American idea of, of profile writing that you would, you know, to try and sort of get beyond the interview, you know, so you would spend time with someone as they go about their job, and also, like, talking to, talking to other people to get their perspective in on the subject. Is that, because I, I noticed with your pieces, there's, you, there's a lot of, like, cultural contextual stuff, so you say the autobiography, the, the cutting, You've clearly really done the work there, but is it fair to say the majority of the, the, the material is, is from the, the subject itself? Would you be talking to other people around the subject as well? I do it sometimes. I'm not as huge a fan of it as others are. I mean, the classic American cover profile with a celebrity has the director and the famous friend, and you know maybe an old friend from school. I don't know how revealing the words of my friends and bosses who obviously all <laughs> hopefully like me a lot and are just trying to make me sound as nice as possible really kind of add to a piece I think sometimes it's interesting um I did a an Emma Stone um cover story a while ago and um she had this burgeoning friendship with Olivia Coleman who she'd met on the set of The Favourite and the profile was in support of that movie opening and so of course Olivia Coleman's going to be genius and give you the kind of funniest karaoke anecdotes and 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 so it proved i love that kind of stuff what it kind of enriches and adds color i don't know if they're always kind of necessary and i do you know i'm a great believer in kind of biography and i do make certainly calls behind the scenes that aren't necessarily for for kind of quotes within the piece but to kind of you know if i'm going to kind of meet someone and i certainly know someone in common with them or um i you know i get i like to hear from people that might be able to kind of give me a steer before i kind of go and ask the person but yes, I mean, you're right, it's it's predominantly the person themselves kind of doing the speaking. It's a funny thing to ask people to do. I mean, to sort of stitch together their own biography in terms of um, its, its, its psych- psychological story. I think it's that's sort of in where your job, um, uh, I think their job is just to, to answer the interesting things they maybe haven't said before. This episode of Always Take Notes is supported by Clean Prose, London's first co-working space designed specifically for writers. Based over three storeys in Shoreditch in the east of the city, Clean Prose's mission is to provide writers of all stripes, from novelists to playwrights, with a space and a community designed especially for them. 
To foster strong connections, Clean Prose offers a professional network that many writers miss when they work alone at home, at a library, or in a noisy cafe. The ground floor is an event space, offering workshops, talks from experts, and book launches. The first floor is an open-plan common room. It is a space for writers to connect, collaborate, drink coffee, and develop their professional networks within the publishing, TV, film, and other creative industries. The second floor is a totally quiet space in which to concentrate and write, with private desks, lockers, and an extensive book collection. To find out more, go to cleanprose.co.uk. Always take notes, listeners, are eligible for a five-day pass to Clean Prose. To redeem this offer, please email write at cleanprose.co.uk with the subject line ATN-Welcome5. When interviewing kind of megastars, as you said, do you find that there's more, they're more keen to kind of stage manage the quotes? They want to see everything that you're going to print, basically. I mean, you'd be really surprised. It, it's a mix. Some people are incredibly controlling. Some people are... I mean, Ariana Grande was at the most kind of sensitive point of her career. It was her first interview after the horrendous attacks in Manchester at her show. And it was the first time she'd spoken to the press um, since then. And she, um, and certainly her team, asked for no pre-list of questions. Um, gave two hours at home um, and in no way... Um, panicked kind of afterwards just let it be and, and, and let it go on um, you know I mean there are some certain other kind of megastars who are kind of deeply involved and a quote will come up and a comment read in a piece and you know suddenly the publicist will call after and be like they're sort of worried about this one thing that they've said and um, but you know Vogue um, does not offer any sort of copy approval um, in a nuts and bolts way the, mo- the thing the most thing we'll ever do is that we will um, send quotes back the literal physical quotes that, that, that appear in the piece, we will sometimes send to a nervous celebrity's team that they can check for accuracy. And it's really, it, to be honest, as a process, it, it, it is somewhat meaningless because obviously that is a total precise um, as written from the from the tape and the accuracy has kind of been built. So, so why do you do it? I think it? I think it's something to do. I think sometimes people just, they panic at that point and it's 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 a... It's sort of something you can sort of show them. So but what happens if they ask to change stuff at that stage? Nothing. I mean, they're only allowed to check them for accuracy. And so if they're not inaccurate, then in they go. So they, they would never, if, say, a, a subject asked to, to strike something off mm. or to change a quote, what are your policies in that situation? No. I mean, yeah. you know, it's... It, also, the thing about Vogue as well, it's, it's less rough and tumble in some ways than, than, than some other outlets. The thing about Vogue is that if you're in Vogue, you're essentially being celebrated. So the story isn't the, you know, the horrible way that you spoke to the waiter. Although, if you did speak to the waiter horribly, which is my favourite thing in interviews, <laughs> because then you, the whole thing writes itself. And it's not that we wouldn't kind of put it in, but it's actually more, almost more a problem for us because we're saying that everything about that Vogue cover is like, this person is important, this person is, this person is essentially a force for good and super intriguing and, 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 and all the rest of it. Um, is there ever a risk with that that you're kind of imposing a, a sort of narrative template on the subject? If you know, I, I understand that if you know the idea is it's it's celebratory, but I thought it was interesting looking at the Fonda and the Grande pieces because you know these are women at opposite ends of their lives, one in their early twenties, one much older. But it's felt me in, in some ways the arc of the narrative was, was actually quite similar for both. It was about overcoming adversity and achieving a mm-hmm. sort of state of 
personal and professional contentment. And is there a risk that you're sort of you just kind of like boilerplating that onto the material? You know? Totally. I mean, there absolutely is a risk, of course. I mean, that's the like natural arc of every kind of celebrity profile, I think, and you do have to kind of resist it at points. Um, it's not. It's interesting that those two kind of that married up in that way. I don't think it's true of kind of, of all of my work or certainly all of the kind of pieces that we have in Vogue. Sometimes someone's just like so holy of the moment that actually their entire narrative is about their, you know, the important kind of um, place that they have in the culture. Say like a Stormzy interview from a couple of years ago or many other examples. Um, but I think it's interesting that thing you say actually about um, Ariana and Jane Fonda being at kind of different ends of kind of life. The thing I've definitely learned about profile writing is, is my favorite people to interview are when they're sort of brand new or when they're like in the kind of fabulous fifth act I think it's fun when you get the kind of young ones who aren't kind of maybe they've had like a bit of media training or whatever but it's all kind of brand new and you see it through their eyes and they're always a bit kind of wilder and they've got the confidence of youth and they haven't been kind of knocked around too much by hideous tabloid pickup or too many scandals getting really sort of nasty or or just the I mean, it's quite exhausting being a celebrity. It's quite exhausting being famous in the modern age. And I think it does have a kind of dulling effect, certainly on your enthusiasms for sitting down for two hours for kind of a big profile. Um, so I love that about the kind of younger people. And then, I mean, literally, if I could only interview people over 70, I would happily do that for the rest of my days. <laughs> because they they know themselves. They've actually got something to say. They've actually lived something, you know. Celebrities are really curious one. You can often find yourself... And I go very open-hearted and, and certainly these days and, and try to find the kind of best in everyone and believe that, you know, most people are inherently interesting or certainly are if you kind of dig dig deep enough. But, you know, fame can be fame can be because of all sorts of things. Of course, it can be because of enormous talent or, you know, captivating, wild kind of charisma. Um, but, you know, it can also be about facial symmetry and being in the right place at the right time. Like, it can, it's it's, you know... Who's top of your um, list of people you'd like to interview? Oh, um, I'd love to interview Madonna. Um, I was desperate to do it for our cover last year, but she turned me down because I was a man and she wanted a woman. Oh, that's seems like kind a, of sexist. <laughs> yeah, but it seems like, you know, I'm, it seems fair enough, doesn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> seems a willing one to chuck back for the hideousness of the patriarchy. I think, think I can take Madonna's rejection <laughs> on, um, to focus um, on your role here at Vogue as features director, um, what's a kind of average day, if such a thing exists, like? What's the balance between commissioning and writing and, and everything else you have to do? Um, yes. I mean, the average days are... Do you know what we do? We have average days at Vogue, you know? I think the mystery the mystery <laughs> of this office is always, and I'm sure I, I thought it myself before kind of coming to work here, um, is, is that it is full kind of Devil Wears Prada fantasy land and some days you have to catch yourself and realise that a lot of it is um, but that said you know some days you've got to be in at seven because you've got 18 different pieces to try and progress to edit a writer to speak to and you've also got three meetings in the day and it's you know the the, the normal chug of, of, of kind of modern media life Um I mean, I would say that in terms of, of the features director job here now, I mean, writing is the extra thing I do. Um, I, I, you know, often go a month or two without, without a piece in the magazine, um, partly because that's, you know, it shouldn't just be me, obviously, writing everything. And um, 
too because um, time. It's I think I thought when I came from weeklies to monthlies, you just even in the even the digital age with a kind of a, a daily necessity to kind of focus there too. I thought even with that, it would be. I thought the lunches would be quite long. <laughs> I thought I thought I'd mosey in mid morning, um, but absolutely not. I mean, it's a insatiable beast, Vogue, because there's always more you can do. People are um, captivated and obsessed with the brand in a way that I've never experienced working anywhere else. And there's and your sort of only limits in terms of what you can achieve or the scope of places that you can take it are your own hours in the day. Um, so you're very mindful of your kind of schedule. Um, yeah. Can we talk about the kind of working culture and the working environment? So you alluded to the you know, the Devil Wears Prada trope, which obviously everyone is familiar with. Um, you know, that's obviously a, a stereotype, but how, you know, you've worked in newspapers as well. What What is the environment like here? And those, the horror stories that are retailed, not just about places like Vogue, but other magazines of a very uh, kind of hierarchical culture of, of things like that, you know, what what is it like as an environment and do you think how it is now compared to how it was 20 years ago or so, is there a difference in that? So I started on literally the same morning that Edward did, um, so I've only known it in his uh, under his care um, and I would say that it can be brutally hard work. I think the seam of workaholism that kind of like flows through the place um, is mostly necessary <laughs> but um uh, certainly makes for kind of intense working life so it's not easy it's not fluffy um but um i don't think the hierarchies that that kind of existed in yesteryear um and not just a, a, a british rogue but um all those all those kind of cliches of kind of 80s media and shoulder pads and mega bitches and and all of that i don't you know i don't i think those have been massively diluted across the board and certainly at edwards vogue he is very anti-hierarchical he um is incredibly inclusive of the younger members of the team um he likes to hear from a huge variety of voices at kind of every stage of the decision making process um and he embraces a kind of wide um uh wide school of opinions from from the entire team which is great to see um I think, you know, Vogue's a really interesting place to work. It's, a lot of people literally were five years old and fantasised about kind of working here and certainly kind of grow up with this kind of like, you know, it's it's a lot of people's literally fantasy job. Um, And so the level of kind of ambition and wiliness and and just, I guess, personal self-belief that it actually takes to sort of get here doesn't, stop when you get here (laughs) so it is in many ways an office packed with alphas um which i think is the 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 principal difference to kind of other places i've worked um and it that is thrilling (laughs) and that is exhausting um and that means you really kind of have to be on your on your best game kind of every day um and look i mean the devil wears Prada stuff is also really true i mean you can't in what in what sense other than the alphas <laughs> yes that's good but i think that we're alphas in a kind of meritocracy now so at least that kind of that's everyone's yeah that kind of works okay um but which aspects of the of well like, i mean for example country? like the, the i mean just the level of the level of flowers for example <laughs> like the assistant one of the assistants could you just to, talk us through the flowers in this office oh yeah stage? so i mean how many orchids are one two three four five we've got six six or seven orchids in front of us 
Um, yeah, okay. That's, I mean, that's There's definitely some more greenery outside as well. Yeah. Soon. I mean, one of the assistants one day told me that she felt that she was a um, part-time journalist, full-time florist <laughs> because of the amount of stuff that comes through. Um, so there's that. Um, and, you know, people are passionate about fashion here, about what they're wearing, about what other people are wearing, about what it says, about what it means, about how fun it is, about, I mean, it's, you know... The, the- floral in spring it's not groundbreaking oh yes exactly <laughs> all the quotes um and edward is a uh, you know but edward is not some edward is not that classic rogue editor of of yesteryear i mean i often i often describe him as like if you imagine so is it, it's miranda Priestley, isn't it in the devil wears prada so if you imagine miranda, if miranda Priestley, same level of focus same level of work ethic same same level of absolute world-class professionalism but if they, if she was really, really nice, <laughs> so it's sort of boundaryless. There's, there's no day of the week or, or almost hour of the day at which you kind of won't be called and 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 thoughts wanted and thoughts gathered and meetings this and it's it's you know it's, uh, it's a big schedule. Can um, we talk about money? So this is a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and how it relates to people's writing lives. So, on the couple of elements here. So with, are you able to say how much Vogue will pay and how much is written? in-house and how much is by freelancers and the second thing with that was in terms of you know the with the the shulman to edward transfer a lot of the thing in the press was about a kind of social class change in the the demographic of people here so the 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 purge of the posh girl as it were is that is that fair and in terms of you know interns coming in salaries here, are people paid realistic salaries here or is there still an assumption that you can live and work for free in london at the start of your career so which of those bits should we do first uh pay for what's in the paying for content in the magazine okay. first um so i would say of a typical issue um it's about 50 50 in terms of um the editors in uh, here because obviously there's the features desk and then there's the fashion features desk who are essentially vogue's kind of core voices and are, and are peppered liberally through kind of every issue um and beauty as well of course um and then i would say about 50 percent of um, the work is kind of commissioned out um I, you know, the word rates to be full and frank, as I am with everyone I kind of speak to in commission, um, it begins at about kind of uh, 40p a word for front of book, if you're kind of doing a short kind of culture roundup or um, a quick trend piece. Um, And then for kind of superstar, superstar award winning novelists, it probably goes up to a pound a word. Um, and then varying degrees kind of kind of within that, um, which I believe are entirely fair and in fact pretty solid market rates these days. Um, we, um, in terms of kind of changing the voices of people um, come, who are contributing to the magazine, that's definitely always kind of um, at the forefront of our kind of mind. Um, I tend to um, rely on a few kind of key people who are who contribute to use kind of again and again but I'm kind of always trying new people I mean why not when I've been on the kind of other side of it I think all commissioners get kind of go through phases don't they they kind of love someone for like six months and they're doing everything and then I get a bit bored or it's just the, the, the thrill of the new always kind of like leads your eye kind of elsewhere and the positive upside to that is that um, I, I'm always kind of looking for kind of new voices to to contribute how do you um, look for those new voices? Is that read, 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 read? Yeah, reading other um, they've done. Absolutely. If someone's having a great little spell somewhere, particularly at a kind of UK newspaper, of course we'll kind of notice and and, and want to meet them. Um, 
And the second part of that about um, payment of interns and, and salaries and so forth. Sure. Where, does, how, has, where is that now? And so that something changed? interesting has happened in my time, and that is that the um, the formalisation of the interning process here has been um, has been made much more robust. Um, I think at the time was uh, at Vogue and 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 as in many other titles at other companies as well. Um, the particularly kind of fashion titles where there's a lot of kind of moving around of of clothes and um, uh, and all the rest of it. There's a huge kind of groundswell of support that's kind of required just for the practical turnout of the magazine. There was a, a an armies of young um, of young people on kind of expenses only that kind of tenor a day thing that I kind of started out on. That's completely gone. We have um, two kind of two or three formal placements now where someone comes for six months um, on a on a on a properly salaried kind of position and 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 it's done kind of that way. What's it like being a man? In this environment, and I suppose you know, in you've you've worked in in very mensy environment, it's sort of arena kind mm-hmm. of traditional thing, also at Sunday Times. You know, is is that something you're conscious of? Is it a factor at all? How, um, do, how does it play? Well, my boss you? is a man, so I guess that's sort of maybe more unusual in terms of fashion titles, and that there's and there's both of us here. <laughs> is that weird? <laughs> um, I've mo- I spent most of my career on teams almost entirely with, with which are entirely kind of other other women I would say and it's been a delight <laughs> they're my favourite offices um, as we come to the, come to an end almost um, I think we have to bring up the, the Meghan Markle issue um, how unusual or exceptional was it to have um, someone of that profile guest edit an issue of Folk I mean that whole experience was extraordinary and remarkable and will be the cornerstone of my memoir in 20 years time <laughs> but yeah no she uh, the Duchess was a phenomena to kind of be around um interestingly we were just looking at the statistics and the kind of final final statistics that come through from um, a little bit later on um and that issue is now officially the best-selling issue in vogue's 103 year history um which is a phenomena in itself and which proves i think that the print market is still there for the taking but you have to do about 40 times more effort um to make it kind of sing um but yeah, so that that started. Um, uh, Edward and, and the Duchess first connected, kind of in the very very early days of of two thousand and nineteen, um, and built a amazing, strong, and impassioned um, kind of working relationship. Um, I had the good fortune um, to meet the Duchess a couple of times through that process, um, um, and she was also you know very involved. I mean, I think when when the idea was first floated that she would you know guest edit this issue, I, I mean that could mean anything, couldn't it? That could be couple of emails and a and a and a and a letter up front but she was you know deeply passionately involved and and throughout the process um uh showed herself to be an entirely authentic and also very journalistically minded i would say as well it was an early meeting at um kensington palace last year i remember her um uh, so quickly getting up the, you know, the cell the stand first front of book you know the, the phrases were in her mouth almost instantly and she was getting it the mix you know like I think she'd in another life she would have been an absolutely fantastic magazine editor I mean clearly from you know from a commercial perspective as you say and from sort of hitting the, the culture as like it's an incredibly astute and clever move I mean the sort of word on the street is that you know these collaborations in general and this one in particular were pretty vexed that you know it's difficult you're dealing with someone who is very used to getting what they want now I'm not trying to you know ambush you or put you in a difficult situation here but like I can see it's a smart move but is actually you know would you want to do it again 
I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's amazing how much work it does kind of take because yeah. you're obviously got your whole magazine life to, to working day to, to, to do. And then you're kind of factoring in um, a whole nother level of, 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 of brand new enthusiasm. Totally would do it again. You know, these are kind of special collectible issues. This is not about handing over kind of Vogue piecemeal kind of all the time. Um, you know, she's the Duchess is the world's most fascinating woman. I think also, you know, more than that, that her um, her concerns and her place in public life um, put her right next to us in terms of of, of, of belief and content and, and, and shared mission. And so the idea of doing an issue together like that, you know, great. Any any huge kind of megastar with 300 million social media followers just for the clicks? I don't think so. I don't think it's worth it. Um, but in this instance, it, it, it felt right. How did you feel in-house about the criticism that royals shouldn't be guest editing Vogue? Um, you know, I think we felt very, very cross, first and foremost, about it. Um, and I think we also felt very grateful that, you know, that she was willing to put herself out there in that way for a mission that she believed in and to do that with us in, in, in a way that was honestly in, so authentic and so heartfelt and so and she was so hardworking and the, the the sort of slings and arrows that then kind of transpired that so often do in her life so unfairly I believe um, I think we felt very grateful that she was willing to put herself out there for us like that and with that kind of the guest editor piece again you know with her but also with others is there one person who's like the fulcrum that everything is is rooted through or is she, you know how often do they come in the building what is there a, is there a process for how you run this well, I, can, I can confirm she never came to the building because we were pretty good at keeping it secret until right the way until just before kind of um the the kind of cover dropped um so meetings were held um uh both at frogmore and then at kensington palace before the move um and edward was the was the point person i mean you know they built a a really in-depth working relationship and uh, I believe a friendship as well through that process and you know also it's the era of WhatsApp you know encrypted the, the, the Duchess the Duchess is a fan of the text and the emoji so uh, oh, there we go that's what we'll lead with um, we should wrap this up because we're banging on time but we wanted to uh, could you talk as a sort of final thing the future of magazines you know not just Vogue but um, you know where where this business is going all, all the, the big questions does print have a survival what's what's the model going forward I mean we were we were struck Rachel in her very assiduous research found the, the stat of the the typical age of a Vogue reader which was late 30s I think and sort of older than perhaps older than my preconception would have been of what it was. Where do you see these these big questions of you know where this is going? I suppose with that as well, where is Giles going as well? What's the the, the next move? Well, the reader breakdown stuff is really interesting. I found out a couple of things when I first moved here that I hadn't appreciated before. One, I believe that is the right, or certainly was um, the the right kind of median age. Apparently, Vogue has this interesting thing where it um, picks up readers pretty young. That actually, there's a whole groundswell of like kind of mid-teens people who kind of live it as kind of early fantasy and then it kind of takes you through your 20s and then sometimes we can lose readers around the um uh around the kids having age and then they kind of return kind of afterwards um so it, why, why do you think that is i think i think are you just shopping less are you caring less if you've got if you've got vomit on you <laughs> is, that, is it as simple as that 
Um, but they come back. Um, and certainly that's not true of everyone. And, and, and certainly, um, but there, there's that kind of like little trend within it. Um, the reader, I haven't got the exact stats for you, but I do know that the readership um, medium figure is going down. It's becoming younger again. I think that's um, absolute testament to what kind of Ebert has done, to where he's placed the concerns of the magazines, to the to um, the very modern take on life that that is being kind of you know loudly presented is is really resonating. Um, in terms of the future of magazines, I mean, you know, we should have started the hour with that, and we could have done the <laughs> done it all on it. Um, I mean, there is that feeling with Vogue that you know that she will endure. That, that it will progress and that she will always be there. I love that I'm calling her she. <laughs> Why not? Like a ship? <laughs> like a drag queen? Um, but, um, and that, you know, if the magazine market were ever to entirely kind of fold and print would become an, a total thing of the past, that in some ways Vogue would be the kind of one to turn the kind of lights out at the end. You know, that isn't the proof of being out there in the kind of day-to-day of it now. I think, you know, the enormous amount of work, the enormous amount of noise, the enormous amount of impact you have to create in order to to shift the dial slightly up is very different to ten years ago. I mean, it is, it's harder. It's um, people kind of expect more. People's attention is so divided. Getting them there is tricky. But that said, you know, fashion particularly is still best appreciated over you know multiple pages in the well of a beautifully printed magazine and and that fact seems to be the thing that protects us certainly there um digital of course is is so so important for us now um but you know that print does sit at the absolute center of the vogue proposition um and hopefully for a long time yet hello it's us again simon what did you make of that interview it was a fascinating experience um very interesting to be inside the Vogue HQ. Um, lots of orchids. Uh, always fascinated to try and gauge the atmosphere of a place like that. I think we sort of did, but maybe not entirely. Yeah. Um, what did you think? Yeah, it was, I really enjoyed it. Um, and he responded very um, graciously to our questions about the uh, Devil Wears Prada cliches. Mm-hmm. Um, and all our questions about working with Meghan Markle and life at Vogue generally. Uh yeah, I think I think it was fascinating. I mean, it's one of these places that has such a level of mystique uh, tied behind it. So useful to to lift the lid on on that what really goes on, which is I suppose what we uh, what we try and do uh, at the podcast. I'm not sure I'd be queuing up to work there, but um, anyway, uh, is that because you're not an alpha, Simon? Yeah, it's because I'm <laughs> fundamentally a beta. Uh, Sorry, that was mean. <laughs> that was that was pretty mean, actually. Pretty mean. That's what you should maybe go and work at Vogue. Um, anyway. On that note. <laughs> on that note. Uh, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Acom. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our social media is by Owen Redahan. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. On Twitter at Take Notes Always. You can support us on Patreon at Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye. <laughs>